continuing in Job, last Sunday we focused on the second portion of Job's response to Bildad's final speech. We looked at chapter 27, walked right through it. We looked at Job's word where he vowed to never sacrifice his truthfulness, integrity, and righteousness by agreeing with his friends who falsely charged him with hiding sin and refusing to repent. We looked at Job's wish where he described his desire for God to handle and treat his enemies as the wicked, his enemies being very likely his own friends who were treating him as such and the people that lived in us. And then lastly, we looked at Job's warning where he described eight devastating judgments that God unleashes on the wicked. I'd like to begin this message this morning, this sermon, with a little Q&A. We're going to be dealing with the subject of wisdom today, or true wisdom. And I think that before we get into it, we need some definitions, some explanations as such. What exactly is wisdom? I think it's a fair question to ask and answer because I think people confuse wisdom with knowledge and vice versa, although the two kind of go hand in hand. Dictionary.com defines wisdom as the quality or state of being wise, knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment as to action, sagacity, which means acuteness, discernment or insight. That's a pretty good definition of what wisdom is. I think I prefer the Cambridge Dictionary's version of it because it's a little simpler, and it defines wisdom as the ability to use knowledge and experience to make good judgments and decisions. That is what wisdom is in essence. Another question to ask and answer is, are there different types of wisdom? And the answer should be no. Wisdom is wisdom is wisdom is wisdom. But I think that we have to unfortunately answer yes, there are different types of wisdom. Being that the fall of man, Genesis 3, resulted in, in a corrupted type of wisdom or an alternative type of wisdom. See, prior to that, there was just wisdom. And then after the fall, an, a new form of it kind of developed. And the fall produced what we typically call worldly wisdom, which really isn't wisdom at all. Worldly wisdom pertains to this fallen world. It is the kind of wisdom that puts worldly knowledge and secular knowledge into proper use. It's based on an understanding and knowledge of the world. And then wisdom, the wisdom aspect is taking that knowledge and applying it and living it out. And we know that there's nothing good that exists in the world, that the world's knowledge is corrupt. So that's kind of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, it... Uh, operates in concert with worldly learning and worldly knowledge and, of course, worldly practice. Proverbs 26, 12 very poignantly says, uh, there is more hope for a fool than for worldly people who see themselves as wise in their own eyes. In other words, a, a fool, which is a, a, a very low type of person scripturally, is better off than someone who thinks they are wise. In fact, the person who thinks they're wise in accordance with the world is a fool, according to scripture. So you've got worldly wisdom, which pertains to this world and worldly knowledge and the application of that knowledge. And then you've got true wisdom, or just real wisdom. True wisdom is not of this world. 
It is foreign. It is alien. Job was seeking at this point, and really throughout his entire trial, he was seeking knowledge and true wisdom regarding his trial, regarding his suffering. So he had some knowledge and had some level of understanding, but wanted a deeper understanding of that knowledge and, 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 and greater wisdom on how to navigate through life with that suffering and that knowledge. And I think the easiest way to put it is that Job had a lot of questions that he wanted answers to and that he felt that only true wisdom could answer and give him the path. I, I, I think he was saying things to himself during his suffering, especially at this juncture after hearing his friends hammer him repeatedly. Why has this happened to me, a righteous man? That's a great question that a great many saints have asked. Of course, another question that was swirling around in his mind is, how does the universe actually work? Because I thought I understood it. Remember, he did think that he understood the way God's economy works. The good always prosper and the wicked always suffer. And now the shoe is on the other foot and the righteous is suffering. And so his entire worldview is being cast off. And, and he's, he's desiring new knowledge and a new wisdom so he can better understand what's going on. Probably was asking the question in his mind, did God mistake me for a wicked person? Has God unleashed divine judgment on my life? And if so, why? Thinking that true wisdom could provide answers in an application. And, uh, undoubtedly, he thought in his mind, my friends are supposed to be wise, godly men. Why have they become altogether vain? They came to me as wise men, but they have not proven their wisdom. They have not helped me. Job's responses to his friend's speeches reveal that these thoughts and questions were absolutely swirling around in his head. His responses reveal that he wanted knowledge, and that he wanted probably more than anything else was true wisdom, so he could understand his situation and, and best navigate through his trial and yet his friends who had come to give him wisdom and compassion and all these things, they had failed repeatedly to provide him with what he desired and what he needed. Most of all, grace. In the next section, Job interrupts his fierce rebuke because that's exactly what he's been doing, is fiercely rebuking his friends. He interrupts it with a beautiful poem on true wisdom. He poetically extols the virtue of true wisdom because he is now convinced that his friends do not have it. I, uh, he, he's, he's, he already stated in, in chapter 27 that he was going to teach his friends some things, and now he's going to teach them about true wisdom because they have proven not to have it. He reckons that if they had true wisdom, as they thought they did and proclaimed they did, uh, that uh, they would have, at the bare minimum, resisted the urge to attack a righteous man himself because wisdom can be summarized as the fear of the Lord. And someone who fears the Lord is not going to go out and recklessly attack the Lord's people. Amen? And he just thinks that I'm going to have to teach them on this because they don't get it. He knows that if they had true wisdom, they would have been helpful rather than hurtful. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job 28. We have to look at the whole chapter this morning. It's a big one. 
And the question that Job asks and answers in this incredible poem is, where is true wisdom? Where can it be found? And this will be a three-point sermon, no matching letters. I'm going to pray before we get to work. Father, we need your help right now. We don't naturally possess wisdom and certainly can't find it here. And it's something that we desperately need. And I believe with all my heart that you have given us so much knowledge, but I think sometimes, and it's not your doing, it's our doing, that we just don't know how to correctly apply it. And that's wisdom. And so we pray that you teach us about true wisdom today, this morning, and that you're glorified through the proclamation of your word. Teach us as we humbly submit ourselves to you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first point, and it is this. Number one, true wisdom cannot be sought. We see this in verses 1 through 14. It cannot be sought. Job describes the various ways man mines for silver and gold in the earth, but is unable to find true wisdom. We'll pick it up at verse 1. This is what he says next in this beautiful poem. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Stop there. Job begins his incredible poem with a statement about mining, which sets the stage for everything that's to come. It's really more of a rhetorical question that he's asking here. He is asking his friends, are there not mines where men find silver and gold? You know, the stuff they're always refining. Surely these precious metals are taken from such deep places in the earth, from mines. This is what he starts with. It's a question, and, and he's setting up a conversation or teaching about mining. That's what he's going to use as a catalyst to get to his point. Verses 2 to 3. He continues, he says, iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore, uh, farthest limit, the ore in gloom and in darkness. So he searches out the farthest limit where he finds the ore in gloom and darkness. Now, Job is essentially saying the exact same thing as in verse 1. And now he's beginning to use types of mining. He stated, hey, mining is a thing and here's types of mining. And his main point really is simple. It's just that if a person wants to find these alloys, they have to mine for them because they are hidden where? In gloomy, deep darkness. What's that? In the earth. Of course, if you start digging in the earth, you realize that it's dark down there. Verse 4. Some of this will move really quickly because it's self-explanatory. Verse 4, speaking of the miner, he opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Job is now describing poetically where man mines for these precious metals like copper and iron ore and gold and silver. Where does he do it? In those valleys, valleys that are away from where everyone or anyone lives, far away from mankind, he puts it. So the mining in his day in the ancient time in, in antiquity it, it took place far away from 
really civilization in a sense. He didn't mine in the backyard. He, he describes it as those forgotten places where you can't even find travelers. That's how remote uh, the mining operations were. He says that is where man opens shafts, or the miners open shafts in the earth. That is where man lowers himself down by rope. And as he descends into the deep darkness, he what? Hangs in the air and swings to and fro on his rope. That's what he's saying. That sounds like a pretty scary type of mining, right? You dig a big hole and then kind of lower yourself down and search the side walls of the hole that you've dug with a, lant, a, lamper, a lantern or some kind of a lamp. That's what you're doing, and that's what he's describing. Verses 5 and 6. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. Job is essentially describing what happens on the surface of the earth and what happens on the surface here, according to him. That's where flour is grown, and what do you do with flour? You use it to make bread. That's where this, on the surface you get flour, you get bread, the materials for bread. And then he says, he's speaking of under the surface. And he says, under the surface there is fire or the undersurface or these caverns or, 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 or tunnels and things that men dig. They are turned up by fire is what he's saying. Ancient miners, after they dug out, you know, holes and these sorts of things and these shafts, they would literally coat the walls with like pitch or a flammable material they would light it on fire and they would let it burn and heat up for a while. And then once it reached a certain temperature, they would throw cold water on the fire and that would douse the flames and cause the, rack, the rock to crack. And when it cracked, what would happen? That would reveal if there was precious metal, precious stones in the cracks. That's what he's talking about. On the surface, that's how we get bread. But below the surface, the miners turn up the holes they dig with fire and cold liquid and the cracking, that's the process of ancient mining. And I think it's fascinating to me that we're reading this. He's giving us kind of a blow-by-blow account of how they mined in his day. And this is during the time of Abraham, well before Moses. And I think that people today really, and, 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 and I think very pridefully and earnestly think they are the most intelligent generation, the most ingenuitive, the most inventive, right? Far superior to past generations. That's the mentality of prideful man today. But Job is showing us from this text that the ancients were pretty smart, pretty ingenuitive, pretty inventive. Probably wouldn't even have much mining today if it weren't for those who kind of built the, the foundation for it through their engineering in fact, the Edomites, that's Job's people, that's the area of Edom that he lives in us. They were master miners. Thinking of other ancient peoples and civilizations, the Romans were quite brilliant. They were masters in engineering, masters in architecture. In fact, they built an aqueduct prior to Jesus' day, and it's still standing. Big stone structure that carried water from one part of the city to the next. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Romans... You know, oh, yeah, they were, they were inferior to us in every way. Oh, yeah, really? They invented concrete, which is used in every conceivable way of building. They invented underfloor heating. 
Do any of you have that in your home? I've heard of that. It's like in the concrete or under the... I want that. I don't like it when my piggies get cold. I've been thinking just back 50 or so years. Kennedy's generation put a man on the moon. Our generation put men in the ladies' restroom. Yeah, we're so much better than they were. Amen? We have lost our way. Unbelievable. And that's funny, but it's really not funny if you think about it. That's the height of our intelligence today. Men swimmers in women's swimming. That's not intelligent. Verses 7 and 8. That path, he's talking about where they dig and out in the, out in the valleys and, and the, the shafts they open up. He says, that path no bird of prey knows. And the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Job is really just describing the hiddenness of, of such deep earthly treasures and these mining operations. They are literally out of sight because they're below the surface and in these remote valleys. He's talking about a falcon here, a bird of prey. What is, what is a bird of prey? What does a falcon have? It has a trained eye. It can see things that the human eye cannot see. And yet here he's seeing that it has no ability to see these things that are mined. The falcon's trained eye cannot see the sapphires and dust of gold that are buried below the surface. They just can't see these things, and neither can the proud beasts who have trodden the land. And he is specifically referring to lions. You've got an animal that has a keen sense and very powerful and sharp vision the lion has, but it doesn't know where these things are. And the falcon, who has an even more trained eye, doesn't know where these things are. This is poetry, verses 9 to 11. He says, man, he's just continuing to explain mining. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out into the light. Job is actually describing three, times, uh, uh, three types of ancient mining that existed in his day. Firstly, he describes what we call tumble mining. Verse 9, man overturns, the miners overturn mountains by the roots. The idea here is in tumble mining, men would pry large rocks and boulders loose. Took a lot of men to do this because some of these boulders weighed many tons. And then they would roll them down the mountainside and they would crack open and thus reveal the treasures within. That's tumble mining. And that was very popular in his day. And then... B, you have tunnel mining. That's probably the most familiar type to us, right? Verse 10, man or the miner cuts out channels in the rocks. That is the most familiar type. In tunnel mining, men would bore through the earth's surface and create shafts and tunnels, and they would use lamps to eliminate the carved stone, thus revealing every precious thing. Of course, they would also heat up the walls, as I just described, and then crack them with the cold water. C, and then you have another type, which is called trap mining. Verse 11, the miner does what? He dams up the streams. In trap mining, men would build a dam to trap a stream's water and dry out a specific section of that creek bed or the torrent bed, and they would search that dry torrent bed for precious metals and stones. And the thing that was hidden by all that rushing water and the darkness of that water, when he dries it out, 
He would thus bring those things that were hidden to light. Oh, look at that. There's an emerald. Well, I couldn't see it while the stream was flowing. That's the idea. That's trap mining. Tumble, tunnel, and trap. He's using all this just to, to get to a particular point. He's not interested in mining, even though I'm quite fascinated by it at this point. Verses 12 to 14, this is where he really kind of starts to, to get to the point. He says, but where shall wisdom be found? What he's essentially saying here is that I have described to you mining and how men search out precious metals and stones, but they can search till the cows come home and they won't find true wisdom. He says, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and if it is not found, it is not found in the living, plainly. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. Really what Job is doing is asking two simple questions. Where do we find wisdom, and where is the place of understanding? Do we see what he was, pardon the pun, digging at here? Yeah. Took an enormous amount of brain power to come up with that one. It took no brain power. That's why I used it. And the, the, the hypothetical here would be if man can, or at least the rhetorical question would be, if man can seek and find precious metals and stones by tumbling, tunneling, and trapping the earth, can he also seek and find true wisdom in the earth? And the answer is no. He cannot. Why? True wisdom cannot be sought here. Why? Because the deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. In other words, it is not here. In verse 13, Job's that even if man could find true wisdom in the world, which he can't, but if he could, he wouldn't be able to recognize it because he does not recognize its worth or does not know its worth. Man, sinful man in his sinful condition could have true wisdom right before him and he would not be able to recognize it because he doesn't have the spiritual prowess or power to recognize it. He wouldn't know true wisdom if it fell out of the sky and, you know, danced on his face. He doesn't have a propensity to understand and comprehend it. The bottom line that Job is seeking to make here is that true wisdom cannot be sought on earth because it does not exist on earth. Man can't find it. He's already described that in the mining. Animals can't find it. He used the falcon and the lion. And the deep and sea cannot find it. Why? Because it is not here. Essentially what he's saying is all the powers of the natural world cannot find true wisdom here in the world. Because it's not here. That moves us to our second point. Number two, true wisdom cannot be bought. This is represented in verses 15 to 22. We will pick it up in verses 15 to 17 in a second here. Job declares that true wisdom is far more valuable than precious metals and stones, and it cannot be bought at any price. That's what he's essentially saying. Now we look at 15, it cannot be bought for gold and silver. Uh, it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. Essentially, all that Job is saying here in verses 15 to 16, he's just telling his friends that you don't have true wisdom, but you need it. But guess what? You can't find it anywhere, and you can't buy it with gold or silver or anything else. 
It's declaring boldly that its value far exceeds that of the rarest, most precious metals and stones of his day. And of course, he gives a, a little list here. You have the gold of Ophir, and we've talked about that before. That's the 24K of the ancient world. That's the highest quality gold there is. It's absolutely pure, 100% pure gold. This true wisdom far exceeds the value of the wealthiest or best gold. Uh, he says precious onyx, and or onyx, and onyx is a semi-precious gemstone. comes in a variety of colors. I would say that we are probably most familiar with black onyx. It's kind of a very deep, kind of dull-looking stone. Of course, it can be polished. It's very affordable. I think in Job's day, it was worth a lot more money than it is today. But I think that Job wasn't referring to your classic, typical black onyx. I think he was talking about pure white onyx, which is far more rare and far more expensive. It almost looks kind of like marble. And then he also mentions sapphire. That is a, that's not a semi-precious. That is a precious gemstone. Uh, it comes in a variety of colors, and which would be the most popular? Blue. When we think of sapphires, we think of blue. When we think of rubies, we think red, right? Blue is the most common or popular sapphire, even though it comes in other colors. The blue sapphire itself is associated with royalty. This is so clearly displayed in the crown jewels. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II sometimes wears a crown called the Imperial State Crown, and it is encrusted with 17 blue sapphires. Two of those sapphires are legendary. One of them is 104 carats. It's called the Stuart Sapphire. It's the big um, uh, rectangular-shaped one right, right in the front, or it's either in the front or the back, but it's right there. Maybe you've seen that before. And then there's also the St. Edward Sapphire. That is a kind of a rose cut that's in the middle of a cross, way up here. That is the oldest jewel in that crown, by the way. It dates back to St. Edward the Confessor, 102 A.D. to 1066 A.D. Gives you an idea of the blue sapphire. And I, and I tell you what, I probably looked for, I don't know why, because I like this stuff, but I, I spent at least 45 minutes trying to find the value of just those two blue sapphires that are in that crown, and I could not find a value on them anywhere. Does that mean they're priceless? Maybe. I think that blue sapphires are already very costly, but when you have a lot of history behind them, it increases the value exponentially, and those are some historical blue sapphires. And there's 17 of them total in that crown. Gives you an idea here of what the sapphire is. In verse 17a, Job declares that gold and glass cannot equal the value of true wisdom. Glass refers to crystal. And crystals aren't worth a whole lot today, but they were worth a lot more in Job's day. And then in verse 17b, Job declares that true wisdom is so utterly priceless that it cannot be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. Right there, you get the idea of fine gold, like the gold of Ophir, with, with all these jewels that he's mentioning um, mounted into this gold, like on a, a wedding ring where you have the gold and then you have the, 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 the setting and then you have the diamond. He's saying that true wisdom is, is beyond the value of anything like that, beyond anything like that at all. Verses 18 to 19, he's continuing. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. This is an interesting one. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. 
Job is continuing to describe the value of true wisdom. In verse 18, he declares that it would be senseless, really, to try to compare coral or crystal, uh, coral or crystal, and uh, even pearls, he says there. You can't even compare those things that were worth a lot of money in his day and are still valuable today. You can't even compare those things to true wisdom. And what is crystal? Uh, crystal is uh, what we would uh, typically call jasper, and that word appears in the Bible several times. Jasper is a semi-precious gemstone. comes in many colors, and red would be the most common. That Hebrew word for pearls can be translated as rubies, and I think that's the way it should be rendered here. So you see pearls on the end of verse 18. That should say rubies, and it does in the NIV and in the NCV, the New Century. Now, how many of you own rubies? They're very valuable, very expensive. Not the man-made stuff. Do they have man-made? They have man-made emeralds. Do they have man-made rubies too? I'm talking about the real stuff that is mined, very, very valuable. He's saying that true wisdom is beyond all of that. And then he kind of gets it to a crescendo here. And I think what he's doing is with the Ethiopian topaz, he's identifying the most precious of all the gems in his day. Maybe even more priceless then than diamonds, because we think of those as the most expensive today. Verse 19, he says, hey, not even Ethiopian topaz, maybe mounted in pure gold, can top the value of true wisdom. Now, do your own analysis and Google search and try to find where topaz is mined in Ethiopia. You won't find it, because topaz is not, and as far as I can tell, has never been mined in Ethiopia. So I think topaz there should be rendered opal. He's talking about Ethiopian opals. Do you know what an Ethiopian opal is? Have you ever seen one? It is one of the most astounding looking rocks I've ever seen in my life. They say that if you look at one closely, you can see the entire universe inside of it because it has all these little colorful chasms. They're amazing. And, and some of them will go for as much as $10,000 a carat. I think that's what he's talking about here, the Ethiopian opal. It is easily one of the most beautiful and interesting gemstones I've ever seen. Its colors and patterns are mesmerizing. Job's main point here, by mentioning all these precious and semi-precious stones and these alloys and these valuable alloys, gold, silver, and what have you, the gold of Ophir, the most expensive gold, his point is that all these precious metals and gemstones cannot be exchanged for true wisdom because true wisdom is far more valuable. It cannot be bought with the most expensive things on earth or the most valuable things. This is what he's saying. There's just nothing out there. The things that we hold to be the most precious and valuable pale in comparison to the value of true wisdom. And so, therefore, it just cannot be bought. You can't, it just, you can't do it. It can't be sought on earth. It can't be bought on earth. You know, it's interesting that um, the wisest man in history besides Jesus said really the exact same thing in his own words, King Solomon, Proverbs 8, 11, wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And I love how in Proverbs he calls wisdom a her, like she's a beautiful queen, a precious, beautiful queen. Solomon would have agreed with Job. Of course, he lived much later than him. Now, after boldly declaring that true wisdom cannot be sought or bought, 
Job asks two questions in the next line, verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? There's your questions. And these questions at this point really make a lot of sense to me. If true wisdom exists because he's not denying the fact that it does exist, if it does exist but cannot be sought or bought with precious metals and jewels or what have you, if it can't be mined and found that way, where then does it come from? Where then can it be found? Obviously it exists, but we can't get to it through the means that he's mentioned. Where is it? Does it have a locale? He's asking, where is the place of true wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? Understanding, sure, Surely it must be out there somewhere. Where then is it, is what he's saying. Verses 21 to 22, he's kind of driving home his point that it just cannot be sought or bought. It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears, but then they're saying, we've only heard about it. We don't know where it is. So in an effort to drive home his first two points, really, uh, you know, that it can't be sought or bought, before giving us the answer to his question in verse 20, Job is simply declaring that true wisdom is hidden from the eyes of all the living. It cannot be found by anyone who has eyes and who can search, not even by the birds of the air, because what do they do? They have a lofty perspective. They're up off the ground and can look down on the ground. We think of the falcon again. Not even they can discern its location. He says, abandoned death claimed to have heard a rumor about true wisdom. In fact, one commentator made it kind of funny. It was as if Abaddon and Death were sitting in an English pub somewhere having a beer. Well, I've heard of true wisdom, but I don't know where you'd find it. Pour me another pint. They've heard of it with their ears, but they're unable to find it, unable to grasp its reality. And what is Abaddon and Death? Abaddon is destruction. Death is death. In other words, even the dead, what he is saying is even the dead, you can't be found by the living, but even the dead are not privy to true wisdom and do not know its location. He's saying you could even go down into Sheol among the dead, and Sheol would be closer to where, where, where the jewels are and everything. That's where mining takes place down below the surface. But if you were to even go down into Sheol and ask the question, even in death and destruction, Abaddon would say, we've only heard of it, but we don't know where it is. So, so man can't find it, the animals can't find it, the sea cannot find it, death cannot find it, it cannot be found. That's what he's saying. He's building and building in his poetry. And then we get to our third and final point. Number three, true wisdom comes only from above. It's not of this world. Verses 23 to 28, Job declares that God alone knows where to find true wisdom. And at the very end of this chapter, he says, essentially, the starting point is the fear of the Lord. That would be where you start. Let's get into the text. Verse 23, he says, you know, nobody can find it. But in verse 23, and yet God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And right there, he's telling us it's, it's hidden with God. It's not of this world. It's out of this world. It's, it's in heaven where God is or somewhere else. It's just not here. 
And of course, nobody can buy anything from God, hence the reason why it can't be bought. You can't pay God off and say, I'd like to buy some true wisdom. I'd like to buy my way out of hell through good works. That doesn't work. God doesn't need your currency, and he doesn't accept your currency. Job has essentially declared that man does not know where true wisdom is. The animals do not know where it is, abandoned death. Nobody can find it. And now he boldly declares that God understands the way to it. He knows exactly where it's at. And then in the next four lines, Job describes the origin of true wisdom. Verses 24 to 27, this is, he's speaking of God, that God does this right here, for he, God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it, he established it, he searched it out. Wow. What is Job essentially describing here? Creation. He's describing creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, when he established them, he gave the earth things like wind and water and lightning and, and, and thunder. Right? He, he kind of pinpoints four parts of creation that God created. Of course, God created much more than that. And then when creation was complete, God looked to the ends of the earth. He looked over his entire creation. He saw everything under the heavens, and then he evaluated his work. And at that point, he declared everything that he had made, everything that he had done, wise. This is a wise work I have performed. Now I want you to think about the human cell for a moment. Brenda, as a nurse, bing, 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 he's speaking my lingo. You know what a cell is. It has three parts, membrane, nucleus, and cytoplasm. The cytoplasm contains intricate arrangements of fine fibers and thousands of minuscule structures called organelles. These fibers and structures consume and transform energy and perform the cell's functions. And just keep in mind, there are a lot of different types of cells in the human anatomy. The nucleus, the center of the cell, contains all of the cell's chromosomes, which encode the genetic material. Evolutionary scientists, evolutionary scientists, which it's kind of hard to imagine they're actually scientists if they're basing their thesis and hypothesis on evolution. But in any case, evolutionary scientists agree that a human cell is staggeringly more complex than the most populated U.S. city, which would be New York, with its 8.5 million people. One human cell has more bustling activity than New York City. That is the, that is the, the hypothesis of evolutionary scientists. How do you stay an evolutionary scientist when you realize that truth? Well, you know, some stuff formed together on the ground. It was a gel, and then, bam, we had human cells. How asinine. Now, let me just ask you a question. What kind of wisdom would it entail to design and create something as intricate and tiny as a human cell? It is more complex than New York City, and it cannot be seen without a powerful microscope. You can't see them, but they're there. 
And our bodies have trillions of cells. Trillions of these little New York cities inside of us performing all their functions. It's really quite staggering when you start to think about the micro aspect of creation. We look at Half Dome and all these things and we, we are astonished and we praise God for, for all of creation and the big beautiful things that he's created, but start thinking about the, the macro or micro level of God's creation, the human cell. We, I think, tremble in fear at times when we consider the vastness of the universe. But what is more astonishing to me than the actual universe and all its vastness is a tiny cell that I can't see that has more activity than the largest city in the United States. That's astounding. God declared that all creation is wise, and this includes every human cell and everything else. Everything God made is wise. And if everything God made is wise, what does that say about God? He is wise. What is wiser, what he created or the creator? <laughs> Think about that. God is infinitely wise and creates an incredibly wise creation. Therefore, he is the source of true wisdom. True wisdom originates in him. He is true wisdom. Don't think of true wisdom as that it's residing in a place. It resides in a person. You see, that's one of the biggest problems with, with our culture and our world, that, that the whole world wants wisdom, and it looks to all things to find wisdom, but it doesn't look to the source of wisdom. It wants the wisdom, but it denies the source. That's the problem. More specifically, true wisdom resides in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God. You know what Colossians 2.3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom or true wisdom and knowledge. Since all things were created by Christ in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and since all things were created through Christ and for Christ, and since Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1, 16 to 17, Christ is therefore the person and source of all true wisdom. The world wants it, but it won't go to him for it. Therefore, it'll never find it. Now, in this last line, God describes what true wisdom is. God. It is not a knowledge of the cosmos and creation. It is not a, 
a secret to a higher life or a mysterious spiritual law that can raise us up to a deeper level of spirituality. It is not answers to life's big questions. Sorry, Job. It is not even a proper use of all this knowledge because that's typically what wisdom is, is using knowledge rightly. According to God here, it is something different, something else. Verse 28, And God said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Hmm. Take note of that phrase, underline it. He said to man, capitalize the H. This is God speaking directly here, not through his agent Job or anyone else, directly. In fact, this is the first time God has spoken directly in the book of Job since the drama of chapters 1 and 2, and the first time in the whole book that God has spoken to human beings. How does God himself, the source of true wisdom, how does he define true wisdom? True wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And then added to that, the turning away from evil is understanding. Fearing God is true wisdom. To fear God is to reverence God. Fear or reverence toward God is the primary quality that makes us wise. And turning away from evil shows that we have understanding. King Solomon said almost the exact same thing in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We just sang it. Solomon puts it as wisdom has a starting. It's different than Job. Wisdom has a starting point, and it begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, you need to understand what's going on here because this is incredible, what Job is doing what we're reading. Job had questions that he believed or thought only true wisdom could answer. Did Job not want to know why he was suffering, why he felt like God was judging him, why his friends were such buffoons? He had legitimate questions. And I'll tell you what, if you enter into a time of suffering, you will have questions. One of the questions you will have is, when will this end? Right? Amen? He had questions. We're in the context now. He had questions. He had issues. He wanted answers. His friends failed. He sought God for knowledge. He sought God for true wisdom. He sought God for answers. But when, when he sought God for true wisdom, which is the right thing to do, by the way, because if you need wisdom, you should go to the source. And James says God will give it to you. But when Job sought God for true wisdom, which was the right thing to do, he remembered what God had said about true wisdom long ago. It is the fear of the Lord. Now that particular answer that Job received in that moment of desperation and seeking after true wisdom from God, that answer that, that, that God gave him, I don't think that it was what Job wanted to hear in that moment. Because 
How does the fear of the Lord answer the question as to when will my suffering end or why am I suffering at all? Have you, you know, forgotten my identity? Are you judging me? How does, how does that answer the fear of the Lord? That's wisdom. How does that answer any of Job's questions? It doesn't, and it's not supposed to. God could have very easily given Job true wisdom in the form of answers to all his questions. But you know what God did? God chose to give Job something far greater himself. Verse 28 is an invitation. It is an invitation to the sufferer. An invitation to bow down in humble submission to the infinitely wise Lord God who may or may not give us the answers to all our questions, but who promises to give us himself. You want answers? Come and bow before me. Then I'll give you answers? No. I give you myself. You see... We're under the delusion that when we have questions and need answers, the remedy is answers. But what we need is the exact same thing in the midst of these trials and travails and suffering. We need exactly what Job needed, not necessarily answers, but God himself. Let me ask you a question. Which is more precious, the architecture of our lives or the architect? Which, if you would be happier to get the answers rather than the one who has them, you are defective in your faith. We, we see this so rampantly in, in, in the charismatic movement where they want the blessings but not the blesser. Run from that. The architecture of your life is important. God has woven it together. But what is most important to you and to me is the architect himself. And that is God's pledge to Job. Job, I'm not giving you the answers, but I'm giving you the architect. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Humbly submit yourself and bow before me and just trust me. That is the meaning here. Closing. Another question to ask, and there's going to be a few of them. How do we know if we are actually wise? How do we know if we have true wisdom? Well, have we repented of our unbelief and put our trust in Christ alone, who is the true wisdom of God? Repenting of your sin and trusting in the Savior is a very wise thing to do. And if you have done that, you show forth wisdom. Have we reverently bowed the knee to Jesus? Maybe we could add a little bit to it here. Um, that is true wisdom. How do we know if we have understanding? Do we hate evil and turn away from it? That's how he defines understanding is the repentance or turn, turning away from evil, the shunning of evil. Do we show that we have knowledge? I mean, Job absolutely had wisdom, but do we show that we also had the knowledge that he possessed? Job 1.1, what did he do? He shunned evil. 
What, is, what does it mean to shun evil? That is understanding. Fearing God is wisdom. Turning away from evil, that is understanding. And if somebody fears the Lord, logically, they're going to turn away from evil because they know evil offends the Lord. They go hand in hand. The person who has true wisdom has knowledge. And you know what? A fool does the exact opposite. He or she says in their heart, there is no God, and they are corrupt, and they do abominable things. Psalms 14.1. Listen to this sobering quote from the Puritan Jeremy Taylor. He says this, he says, Who in the world is a greater fool, a more ignorant, wretched person than he that is an atheist? Those are some stinging words, and it, and they almost, it almost feels kind of offensive and an attack on those who reject God. Why is the atheist a greater, more ignorant, wretched fool in the world? Because he foolishly denies the plain evidence that is right before his very eyes. The whole creation testifies to God's eternal power and divine nature. God is clearly perceived since the creation of the world. Romans 1, 19 and 20. And what happens is the atheist, he examines the plain evidence that's right before his or her eyes, and his or her response is, there is no God. That is the epitome of foolishness. That is why the atheist is the greatest fool in the world. He or she is more foolish than wicked demons because even they believe and shudder. They do not deny the existence and power of God. They tremble and fear at it. Demons. James 2.19 Are you truly wise? Have you repented and trusted in the true wisdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have understanding? Do you hate evil and turn from it? Or are you a wretched fool, an evidence-denying atheist who loves sin and practices evil? Go back and reread Job 27, verses 8 to 23. Re-examine God's devastating judgments against the wicked, against the atheist. Take seriously the testimony of Holy Scripture. Repent and trust in true wisdom in Christ and be delivered from God's wrath. Be delivered from those devastating judgments. For today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Do not tarry and put it off any longer. Trust in Christ.